1: Welcome to Censored, a podcast where we forage for filth in dusty newsprint. I'm Eva Vrithnacht, and we've made it to the last episode of Series 8. Thanks for joining me on this wild ride, because you're the best company a lewd reader like myself could want. This week, it's another magazine. And this one rejoices in a very exciting title, Exchange and Mart. When I first read this title, I thought it was a farmer's magazine, because to me the word Mart equals cowshite. In Ireland, a Mart is a large barn-like building on the edge of a town where farm animals are bought and sold. I suppose Mart is short for market. So I thought that it wasn't surprising Exchange and Mart was only banned for two weeks in 1930. After all, the farmers in Ireland needed their cattle and sheep news. Then I found it in the register again in 1950. It was banned this time for 12 years, until 1962. So I got nosy and went to check what Exchange and Mart was actually about. The first thing I learned was that it still exists today, and that it's more than 150 years old. It's a rare survivor in the magazine world, but today it now sells second-hand cars only. In its previous lives, it was an exchange and marketplace for anything and everything. So yeah, they did sell animals, especially dogs, cats, and a lot of poultry. Think of it as more like Craigslist or eBay. A place for small ads of every description. Some of the ads, of course, are from businesses. But most are from Joe or Josephine Soap selling the equivalent of their unused air fryers. Once a week, Exchange and Mart appeared in the newsagents, full of all kinds of ads for all types of goods. If you were looking for bargains, this was the place to go. I read a really good article about how amateur antique dealing was facilitated by exchange and mart. Who knew the antiques roadshow culture started here? That it has lasted for a hundred and fifty years shows how much demand there is for such a magazine. You might remember that in previous magazine episodes I've looked at these publications in kind of two halves. Firstly the content, like the features or the news stories, and then the ads. Well this time it's just the ads, because that's really why Exchange and Mart existed. And crucially, these ads were mostly placed by private individuals. It's the classified ads that I'm looking at here. One caveat, though, I haven't been able to read a representative sample issue, an entire issue of Exchange and Mart, because researching this kind of magazine is pushing the definition of a historical document that is worthy of preservation to its limit. As magazines go, this one has not proved very collectible, which is sort of ironic given that it sold so many collectibles. It doesn't have interesting cover art, there's no featured novelists, and there's no celebrity interviews. Enthusiasts haven't digitised back issues to share with their fellow nerds, And to be fair, it's hard to see the attraction of this black and white magazine that's just pages of ads in really tiny print. Okay, apart from historians, but you know, we're weird. You couldn't even really get excited about the graphic design of the ads or typefaces. It's just uninspiring looking. Now, I did find editions from 1870 and 1871, but sure, that was no good at all. So I had to do a lot of digging around, and I finally found a few images online and squinted at them for a while. Almost instantly, I knew it would be worth an episode. This is an example of a really intriguing ad that caught my eye. Photos issued Dublin Rebellion, April 1916. Bombarded streets executed leaders. Copies soon suppressed. What offers? Question mark. Box Leicester 1356. Well. I mean, tell me more. Band photographs of the 1916 Rising? Sounds great. I just wonder, how many people sent cash in the post on the off chance that this was legit? And how many were disappointed? Sadly, we'll never know. Now, to distract myself from the smudgy typeface, I'm pouring a beer because I feel this magazine would have been very closely read in pubs. But it was also poured over at kitchen tables and in drawing rooms. So a cup of tea would also go very well with it. As important as the drink is this time, it's the postage stamps that are really the star of the show. Because without the post, Exchange and Mart would never have existed. It was a business built on letters until telephones and of course the internet came along. Right, time to get stuck into this magazine. In the censors register, someone wrote in pencil that Exchange in Mart was judged habitually and frequently indecent in 1930. The censors really preferred the word indecent over obscene because obscenity has a lot of legal baggage. I think they were afraid to use obscene too often in case they'd be dragged up before the courts. Indecency, by contrast, wasn't as well defined in law, so this stuck with that instead. So really, of course, I have no idea what it means in this context. And in the case of Exchange and Mart, I find it hard to believe that something as mundane as a classified ad magazine could be indecent, but trust the Irish censors to find the dirt. They were admirably single-minded. So the first page of ads in this 4th of September 1930 edition begins with Accommodation cottages to let, rooms in hotels, townhouses, that sort of thing. I can't see how any of these relate to censorship, but if you're looking for inspiration for short stories, these are amazing. Like this one, which tells you so much and so little. Married people, without children, require for one month, about February, a fully furnished country cottage. Devonshire Coast preferred Replies take six weeks. Box, India. 52528. So they're moving to coastal Britain in February after living in India. I just don't get why anyone would seek out chillblains like that. There's a story there, all right. But unfortunately, for my purposes today, nothing to do with censorship. So I kept going, magnifying and squinting and cursing the poor resolution until I came to the heading Books. Reading these ads through censorship spectacles, I got suspicious. And this was the first one to catch my eye, under the subheading Fiction. Translations of scarce novels, sale or exchange. Right, in stamp. Howard, 151 Cooksley Road, Birmingham. I know, some of you were like, so? That doesn't say anything interesting but I invite you to consider the word translations. This implies the novels are foreign in origin. In 1930, the most explicit English language material is published abroad in France, a country associated with permissiveness and debauchery. Of course, lots of them are written in English for English speakers. They're not French in that sense. The reason they're published in France is that the British state had waged a successful war against publishers of porn and risque stuff in the 19th century. To escape obscenity prosecutions and languishing in jail for years, these publishers moved across the Channel. They sold their wares through the post, but these parcels were often confiscated by customs and burnt. So I'm interpreting translations of scarce novels to mean French filth, that was heavily policed and hard to get. Now, I know, this is just a hunch, a strong suspicion. I can't be sure. I haven't yet found Howard of Cooksey Road, Birmingham, in the courts charged with obscenity. You could dismiss this interpretation if you're the sort of person who needs proof-proof, but I'm not that sort of historian. I like reading texts closely to find inferences, atmospheres, vibes even. And the silences in this sentence also catch my eye. There's something very intriguing about the absence of detail in this particular ad. The novels aren't listed by name. There are no titles, no authors, no information about the editions. How would a customer know what they were getting? Well, they wouldn't. They sent a prepaid envelope to Howard, who posted them a catalogue. Then they entered into further negotiations about what French porn they wanted to buy. This ad, I think, was an invitation, a suggestive and teasing one. So that was the first one that I thought, yeah, I think there's something in these ads. And underneath it was this ad, which read, and it's a long one, The Wonder Book of Genuine Selected Recipes, Containing Patent Medicines, Baker's Secret Recipes and Purchased, Trade and Private Recipes. Note, the recipe for the cure of the tobacco habit in three days alone is worth the money. Given Free, the most amazing book entitled Birth Control and the Dangers of Criminal Abortion. The book that tells you the truth. And this was being sold by a Bennett agency, 31 Queen Street, Treforest in Glamorgan. So obviously, of course, when you read this, you think, there's a free book about birth control and abortion. It's hard to tell if this is a pro or anti-publication, but of course, that's not really the point for the Irish censors. Just saying those words is the problem. But let's return to the first line of the ad more closely. Once again, it's the wonder book of genuine selected recipes containing patent medicines, Baker's Secret Recipes and Purchase Trade and Private Recipes. I would argue that this is potentially suspicious, because I don't think the recipes are for cake or custard. It suggests home pharmaceuticals to me, because of the phrase patent medicines. It's possible this book has recipes for how to make cold remedies, just like the ones you'd buy in the chemists. So, do-it-yourself-fix-vapour-rub kind of thing. Nothing contentious in that at all, except that patent medicines could also mean something brewed for abortifacient purposes. Now, the ad doesn't give you any verbal hints of this. If the word marital had appeared, I'd have a strong argument. Even better, if the recipes were advertised as cure for obstruction, I'd be pretty unassailable. If it wasn't really for that line about birth control and abortion, I probably wouldn't have chosen this one to read out to you. But we need to imagine a society where contraceptive technology was controversial. OK, so Britain didn't ban condoms or diaphragms or spermicides, but there was a lot of debate about who should sell these products. Mostly, these were sold to the customer, direct by a manufacturer, often through the post. In the 30s and 40s, doctors and chemists began to assert their authority over these products, pushing to make them into medical devices. There's a whole fascinating history to this kind of discourse that I just don't have time to go into, but there's some links in the show notes to get you started.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But regardless of this particular specific power struggle, this isn't a society that speaks plainly in unambiguous factual language about sex. In public, sex is spoken about in code, through these wink-wink phrases, and I think I did talk about this before in the episode on True Detective. It was the same in the US, and we can partly blame censorship laws for this. To avoid being prosecuted for obscenity, advertisers developed a whole language of euphemism to sell contraceptives. That's why an ad with feminine in it deserves close reading, because that's a very significant key word. For example, if a product was a vaginal douche, it would mention feminine hygiene. This is a world, after all, where surgical appliances means condoms. But to return again to this ad for recipes, it doesn't have any keywords. So what am I trying to say? Well, I do think that free book about birth control and abortion is a giant red flag. If I was looking for information on reproduction in 1930... I'd take my chance on this cellar. All I might end up with, of course, is information on how to make my own vaginal douche. Though I have to say, those recipes I've read sound terrifying. Women were rinsing their postcoital fannies out with every household product you could think of. They tried mouthwash, disinfectant, shaving foam, vinegar, even feckin' toothpaste. Women did occasionally die from washing their vaginas out with disinfectant, Not often enough that the risks outweighed the potential contraceptive benefits. And the worst part was nobody was sure what worked. So it was all a feckin' lottery anyway. Horrible times. And I think that's one of the most important things to remember about getting devices or information in the 30s. There weren't the same scientific, rigorously tested products out there. So chancing your arm in the classified ads was typical. What else could you do? If your friends and family wouldn't share any information with you, where else could you go? The ads in places like Exchange and Mart could be a valuable source of information about bodies and sex. But let's imagine you had some idea of what you were looking for. Then the classified ads could be really useful. Some booksellers advertise specific titles, which is a lot less sketchy than that dodgy translation stuff. In this edition of Exchange and Mart, an Essex-based seller advertised a book by Margaret Sanger called New Motherhood. And in case you were maybe unfamiliar with Sanger, in brackets he'd put eugenics. Now most people probably did know who Sanger was and what her publications were about because she was a very famous advocate of birth control. This particular book of hers was the 10th book banned by the Irish censors in May 1930. Like Marie Stopes, Margaret Sanger was frequently banned by the Irish state. So in May, New Motherhood is banned in Ireland, but in this September issue of Exchange and Mart, Irish readers can see that it's on sale in Britain through the post. The problem facing the censors then is kind of obvious. Banning books is clearly not enough because those same books could circulate through private sales made in the classifieds that were published in Britain. No wonder they thought about banning it. In all the ads I've quoted, potential customers wrote directly to sellers. But I think the most important service Exchange and Mart provided was anonymous correspondence between seller and vendor. The publishers, called Bazaar, offered a P.O. Box service so the other party would never know your real address it made buying and selling safe, private and anonymous. This also ensured anonymity for people who needed to conceal their private lives. Naturally, this mix of coded languages and anonymity made the small ad a place where LGBTQ plus communities could find space to meet up or correspond. For example, a blog that I came across from 2016 suggests the ad selling leather biking clothes in exchange and Mart, could have connected gay leather men. I've put a link in the show notes if you want to read the full piece. To me, it's an argument that makes sense. These classified ads can be read in many ways, and that goes for in the year 1930 as it does in 2023. Coded languages change all the time, so it is sometimes hard to rediscover those past meanings. It takes years of careful research to follow the breadcrumbs, And it's only because other people have done the work and made these suggestions that I'm reading the ads this way. And we do know, of course, that personal ads played a huge role in gay culture, so it's worth looking at Exchange and Mart in this light. I agree, though, it doesn't seem like the most promising place to find sex in the classifieds. Unless you were horny for stamped self-addressed envelopes, why would you look in Exchange and Mart? One of my theories, at least, is plausible deniability. Because Exchange and Mart was never a specific interest magazine, you could claim to be reading it for anything. Your work colleagues probably wouldn't be suspicious. Unless, of course, you worked for the Irish censor. Then you were fucked. The ads in its pages are for ordinary products, mundane, unremarkable things. The seller advertising Sanger's book, for example, was also selling the Masterpiece Library of Short Stories in 20 volumes. What I love about these classified ads is the mix of boring and ambiguous within them. Do you remember that photo ad I mentioned at the beginning? The one about the 1916 photographs? Some historians have looked at the ads in the photography sections and read them as spaces where amateur porn was traded. To be honest, it'd be odd if there wasn't porn being traded through the classifieds. We all know porn is central to commerce on the internet. Why wouldn't it be a part of this paper marketplace as well? I'm pretty sure it was. But alongside underground trade in porn, there was also censorship. Not just in the language of euphemism, but I want to turn now to the physical world of letters and parcels that Exchange and mart rested upon. So I've already mentioned the customs, yeah? They're stopping things at the border and burning them on site. That's under the Customs Consolidation Act of 1876. This is the sentence relating to indecency and the things that they could stop. Indecent or obscene prints, paintings, photographs, books, cards, lithographic or other engravings, or any other indecent or obscene articles. You'll agree that's a pretty comprehensive list of printed material. And then they tack on articles to cover any material object. It's a very catch-all piece of legislation. This act was in force in Britain and Ireland because the Irish kept it after independence. Customs were indeed very good at stopping bulk deliveries. But it's hard to stop goods once they get into a country. They had no jurisdiction over deliveries within the borders, like those arranged through the classified ads step forward the post office, which could arrest the post. I think I did talk about this before in the Ulysses episode with Dr Lloyd of Houston, so listen back if you want a refresher on covert censorship. Under the Post Office Act 1908, an individual's post could be stopped and read before delivery. The Irish kept this act until 1951, But actually, there's very little evidence that they did censor the post in Ireland, apart from wartime. Under the Censorship of Publications Act, the postal authorities could issue warrants to arrest the post if they suspected filthy books were moving around in them. But the only historian who looked couldn't find any proof that they ever did. Probably too time-consuming and expensive. So really, the customs are the first line of defence in the Irish censorship system. I think I've established that in 1930, and in other decades, Exchange and Mart was probably a marketplace for dodgy books and photographs. It evaded various forms of censorship because these were private, small sales, and the language was coy enough not to offend anybody. For Irish readers, the magazine offered the chance to purchase banned books in single transactions, and these would have had a better chance of evading customs. I'm not saying now the customs weren't stopping personal deliveries, because they were, but they just couldn't stop everything. It's not possible. If you'd had the neck and the cash to risk it, you probably could order illicit stuff from Britain. Sadly, we'll never know how many people tried it and got away with it, because obviously there's no records of undetected crime. The very fact that this magazine was one of the first periodicals banned in 1930 makes me think people in Ireland were buying stuff from Exchange and Mart. In the first year of the censorship, the board went for obvious targets, like British tabloids. Exchange and Mart was the tenth periodical on the blacklist, so someone had their eye on it. It was up there with the news of the world. In some ways... I'm not surprised a magazine of classified ads was banned so quickly. In the report on evil literature from 1929, they included a whole section on advertisements. They were sure that dirty books, photographs, abortifacients and contraceptive devices were sold through the ads in ordinary periodicals. I'm sure that was true, though obviously I think this is great instead of awful. In this section is my favourite line in the whole report. I'm sure I've read it out to you before, but I love it so much that I'm going to do it again. Anyway, you've probably forgotten it. An innocent-looking advertisement of pills to prevent fat, when replied to by a young girl, led to the receipt of a parcel of immoral advertisements. Oh my God, clutch those pearls. Ads are a danger to the health and morals of young girls. Nothing. Just nothing could be worse i especially like how one simple innocent looking ad led to a deluge of dodgy ones it's like the floodgates opened it's very apocryphal with that in mind i suppose it makes perfect sense the censors went for exchange in mart in 1930 what doesn't really make sense is the ban only lasted for a few weeks I don't know why they lifted the prohibition order before it was due to expire, but Exchange and Mart was fully legal again until 1950. I'd like to think that in those decades, the magazine facilitated all kinds of immoral material entering the Irish state. Who knows what kinds of photos and books circulated thanks to the classified ads in Exchange and mart? I rarely end with an uplifting story of resistance and evasion of the power of the state. But maybe, just finally, this is one. I'm shocked, just shocked, that I've finished Season 8 with a happy ending. I don't know what's going on there. I didn't think it was possible. Season 9 is already in the works. I think I'm focusing on memoirs, autobiographies, diaries... All those confessional texts this time. Authors who dared to show real life without the excuse of fiction were banned pretty frequently. I'll be back soon with sexual frolics and political controversy. So till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.